where the uh, sun was. I was looking at the um, uh, map there of Suriname, and they're pretty close to the equator. So the sun is there over the equator, giving uh, more light than we've had in the previous months. And so we have our longer days and uh, warmer temperatures coming for us. And so uh, that's a good thing. I know for me, I do enjoy uh, our garden at home. And uh, it's right about the time when I start planting and preparing for some of those uh, spring crops and then some of the early summer crops. And so I've been busy back there the past few weeks kind of clearing things out and uh, having to uh, rebuild and reinforce some of the uh, garden boxes there and uh, just kind of preparing the soil for all sorts of things. And uh, if you've been to our house, you know that uh, we do enjoy that garden, but we don't have a whole lot of space. Uh, the, the space that we have, uh, here's, by the way, if you're interested, uh, it looks maybe like a little jungle right there, but that actually is a pretty productive little garden jungle. Uh, and so we have all kinds of stuff. That's actually from last year. Right now it's pretty uh, empty. Uh, everything's kind of new and just starting to take root. And so uh, everything from broccoli and kale and cilantro and tomatoes, bell peppers, uh, zucchini, squash, basil, all we kind of fit everything. We pack all that we can in there. Uh, because I really enjoy working the garden. Uh, we've had some pretty productive years. This was uh, just this is what we would get almost like every two or three days from our garden with tomatoes and zucchini and uh, our apple tree at the time. Just it was very good because we didn't really have to go shopping for many vegetables, and so we always had quite a few things. In fact, as these things start to grow and we can't consume all of them, we'll bring some here. And if you'd like some. Uh, you could take some. We're anticipating that we're going to have another good crop this year because it's been pretty good for the past few years. Uh, and again, as you can see, there's not a whole lot of room, so it's kind of limited as to what I can do there. I have to be very selective in what I buy and, and how far I can space them apart or should. That way I can kind of maximize the space. Uh, but we have had some failed crops. Uh, I've tried to grow cucumbers, and they just don't take root. I don't know why. Uh, there's probably something I'm doing wrong, or maybe it's the soil itself, but they never have taken root. Uh, they just kind of vine a bit and then die out. Uh, I thought we were going to have some good watermelon uh, for a time. The vines looked very healthy, and they were just kind of spreading out. But in the, uh, the, the previous two years that I've tried to grow watermelon here, uh, I had one watermelon that we actually grew uh, to the point of it being ripe, and that, that tasted pretty good. But that was it. Other than that, it took up a lot of space, and it produced nothing for us. Watermelon and cantaloupe and honeydew. I had one good melon of the three vines over two years. Uh, and so, you know, it didn't grow. It was taking up space, so what did I do? I just took it out. I said, I, I can't afford to give up this, this garden real estate for something that's not producing. And so, uh, unfortunately for me and for us, the uh, melons weren't... Uh, they didn't stay very long, and they're probably not going to come back this year uh, unless I can find some other way or some other place to grow them because I just don't have the space that we've had in previous years at different houses. And so I cannot give up that kind of uh, space for something that is not productive. Now, you might be asking why I'm showing you uh, these slides and talking about our garden. Uh, it's because it does have a direct connection to our text this morning. Open, if you will, to Luke chapter 13. And as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. Uh, as we are studying uh, this teaching by Jesus Christ, 
uh, we're going to see here that the same logic that I just shared with you of pulling up these, these uh, vines because they're not productive is the same thing that Jesus teaches about uh, here in Luke chapter 13. That uh, there is a tree that is expected to produce fruit. And because it doesn't produce fruit season after season after season, it needs to be removed because it's taking up valuable space, valuable resources. And as, as we have been learning on Wednesday evenings uh, in our Bible study, that as we're studying the life of Christ and we're studying his teaching, there is often the, the physical or the temporal teaching, the, the example, the illustration. And we'll see that here this morning with the fig tree. But there is a greater spiritual meaning behind it, a greater spiritual lesson. And so Jesus is not talking about uh, literal vineyards and literal trees, meaning that's his whole point of his teaching uh, in this parable. He's using these illustrations, he's using these word pictures, these examples that people would have understood well to teach them a greater spiritual lesson. And so this morning, as we look at these verses, we're going to look at a parable. It's the parable of the fig tree. And this fig tree is representative uh, of the nation of Israel. Okay, so, so we look at that, that, that near uh, context of, of who is this fig tree. We understand here that this is the nation of Israel. There is application for us as well. So don't think that what you're learning this morning is only for the people of Israel and only for this time when Christ was here in his earthly ministry. Uh, these verses, verses 6 through 9, are actually, uh, you could say, maybe part two from last week's message. Uh, the past few weeks or the past few messages that we've been in Luke, uh, if you recall, Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48, uh, was being prepared for the return of Christ. Luke 12, 49 through 59, was understanding and escaping the coming judgment. Last week, in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, it was making sense of suffering and sin. And if you recall, we looked at two events that took place. Uh, one was the Galilean slaughter in the temple by Pilate. Uh, the other was the Tower of Siloam that fell and crushed all these people to death. And as Jesus was being uh, uh, questioned and they were presenting uh, the, the uh, attack on the Galileans and then he brought up the, uh, the um, uh, death at the uh, Tower of, of uh, Siloam, he, he basically was telling those who were in his presence that you, you are thinking the wrong thing, you're asking the wrong questions, you have the wrong focus. It's not whether or not these people sinned. It's not whether they were greater sinners. What you need to understand is that as they perish, you will also perish. And so your focus should be is, are you ready when your time comes? You need to be right with God. You need to repent. You need to make sure that when your day is called to leave this earth, that you are ready to leave. And so when we look here at this parable, verses 6 through 9, it really focuses on the same thing. It focuses on repentance, and, and Christ gives us this word picture, this example through a parable to drive home the point that people need to be ready for the coming judgment. And so as we look at this parable of the fig tree, again, it's uh, a story about a, a tree that did not produce, and because it didn't produce, the landowner logically says, cut it down. It's wasting space. It's taking up valuable resources. And as we look at this parable, we're going to see the connection to Israel and their history of rejection of God and the prophets and of his word. We'll see the application for us today, that even though we're not living in this day and age when Christ was here on the earth and we are not Israel, there is still the understanding that we are to be fruitful. 
God created us to serve him, and if you profess to be a believer in Jesus Christ, there should be fruit that is evident in your life. And so there's going to be some direct application for us as well. But remember that the main point is not the tree itself. It's the people that it represents, and it's their situation that is represented here. That for those who do not bear fruit in the eyes of God, his response will be, cut them down. Judgment. And the only thing that can spare you from that is to be productive, to bear fruit, and that is fruit in line with repentance. And so we will learn that today, the importance of repentance and bearing fruit in the eyes of God. And so as we look at our, our lesson today, I've titled it The Mercy and Limit of Divine Patience. I was kind of going back and forth with various titles for the passage, and I thought, well, the easy one is the parable of the fig tree. And I think that's what many pastors, many preachers will take. And that's true, it is the parable of the fig tree. But I think what really is on display here is God's mercy. God's mercy to a tree that deserves to be uprooted. But there is a limit to that mercy. And although God is patient, he will not remain patient forever. So that, I think, is an appropriate title as we look at this text this morning. Let's take a look at verses 6 through 9 and see what is happening here as Christ is teaching once again through parable. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vine keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir. For this year too, and, and until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. So as we look at this text this morning, we're going to see, we're going to break it up into three sections here, three points for us this morning. First of all, we'll see the desire to be fruitful. Okay, this is not the desire of the tree to be fruitful. This is the, the, the desire of the landowner, that his tree is fruitful. So the desire to be fruitful then we'll see the danger of being fruitless. For those who do not produce fruit for the landowner, his response is going to be, remove it, cut it down. There is the imminent danger of judgment. And then we will see the deadline to become fruitful. This is where the mercy and the grace and the patience comes in. That the landowner gives more time for this tree to produce fruit. He doesn't have to, but he does. But that time is limited. That time does not last forever. So we'll see the desire to be fruitful, the danger of being fruitless, and then the deadline to become fruitful. Well, let's begin here in prayer, and then we'll come to our first point. Father, we come to you once again, and we thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity to approach your throne because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has made us worthy and righteous in your eyes because of his wonderful work on our behalf. We pray this morning as we come to your word that you will give us understanding of this text, that we will see the importance of it, the truth of it, that we will embrace that as truth and then apply it to our lives and share it with others so that your name will be glorified and that others will understand that judgment is coming, but it can be avoided. If they turn from their sin, turn to you through your son, Jesus Christ. And so we ask your blessing over this morning. And again, we pray that you are glorified in it. We thank and we praise you in Christ's name. 
Amen. Well, as we look at the first point, the desire to be fruitful, once again it says, and he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. Now, you might be asking yourself, wondering, why a fig tree? Why not some other tree? Why not some other plant? Why not some other crop? I, I think there's two good reasons why Jesus chose the fig tree. Uh, the first one, which you see here, there's a, a fig tree uh, there in the uh, land of Israel on your left, my right. And then you see all the figs growing there on a tree that has been producing. You see the, uh, the um, bulk there of all of those uh, sweet figs. And so this is what would be expected of a healthy fig tree. Well, these are the most common fruit trees in Palestine. So it makes sense that Jesus would point to something that everyone knew. For us in California, we might say there's the parable of the palm tree. Okay, we understand that in California, you expect to see palm trees. You might also expect to see pines, evergreens, if you go to certain parts. But you come to Southern California, and you're thinking palm trees. When tourists come here, they want to see Disneyland, they want to see Hollywood, they want to see the beaches, and they want to see palm trees. They probably want to go to In-N-Out as well. But I don't want to make you hungry, because then you'll be distracted. Um, so scratch that, forget that I said that. But they'll come here looking for that as well. But you think palm trees when you think California. You think fig trees or olive trees if you're looking at Palestine. So Jesus chose a tree that was very familiar to the people. And they all understood that the fig tree was really only good if it produced figs. If it did not produce figs, it failed in its purpose, in its existence. A fig tree is supposed to produce figs. And so as he's telling this parable, that makes perfect sense why he would choose the fig tree. But I think there's also um, some spiritual and some scriptural uh, uh, examples. Here you can see a, a bowl of, of figs, ripe figs, uh, for them to eat. And again, I mean, they would look at this and say, this is a delicacy. This is tasty. And so they would expect to see that kind of produce from a healthy tree. But the spiritual connection here. Here's two examples from the Old Testament. Uh, there are Old Testament references that connect Israel directly to fig trees or vineyards. And, and so if they, if they didn't catch this uh, spiritually, they would have caught just the, the fact that these trees are everywhere. But for, for any Jewish person who knew the Old Testament, who remembered the prophets, they would understand that the fig tree was often in connection with the people of Israel. And a healthy fig tree, a fig tree that was producing, was a sign of prosperity and blessing. And so here, if you look just at a couple of these, Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. Joel chapter 1, verse 7, It has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. So whether it's talking about prosperity or judgment, the fig tree was associated with the people of Israel. And so when Jesus speaks about the fig tree, it's that common tree they all know about, but it also represents the nation. And that's why I say as we look at this parable this morning, the first thing we have to understand or we have to ask ourselves is how does this connect to Israel? And then after we understand that, then we can say, how does this apply to us this morning? Uh, when you consider more about the fig tree, I, I appreciated this from David Garland's commentary, so let me share this with you. It says, the fig tree is a potent image in Scripture. 
It is the only tree specifically mentioned in the Garden of Eden since it provided a covering for Adam and Eve. It appears as a figure related to the blessings of the Promised Land in Deuteronomy 8, 7 and 8. Uh, the image of everyone sitting under his vine and fig tree during Solomon's era is one of blessing and peace, prosperity and safety. And you can find that in 1 Kings and in Micah. The fig tree therefore evokes images of Israel's golden past and hopes for a blessed future. So again, the understanding that, that the fig tree is important when it comes to Israel's existence and God's plan and purpose for the nation of Israel. So it makes perfect sense that Jesus is teaching about the parable of the fig tree. When we talk about this, this judgment that is coming, when we talk about the expectation for produce, again, if a landowner is going to commit that kind of, of, of soil space and the water, the nutrients, the fertilizing and, and the care, he's going to expect it to be productive. Just like I would not tolerate a, a watermelon or cantaloupe vine that's just taking up precious space. And if you've ever grown them, you know how wide they spread out. I mean, they cover a whole area and they need that space. But if there's no melons, there's no reason to keep the vine. Well, as we see here from Dwight Pentecost, which is a book that I highly recommend, if you want to study the Gospels, you want to study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the words and works of Jesus Christ. Uh, Dwight Pentecost goes through every chapter, every verse, every section, and he looks at how all the Gospels harmonize. Now, and as he does this, he gives a little commentary on each one. He says this about this passage. A fig tree was planted for one purpose, to provide fruit. A fruitless tree is not only worthless itself, but it occupies ground that could be used by a tree that would bear fruit. The only sensible thing to do then is to cut down a fruitless tree so that the land may be used by a tree that will bear fruit. They weren't thinking about using them for swings or for shade or tree houses. I mean, we might have trees in our yards, and, and we enjoy that, and, and we will do those other things with them. But here in the vineyard, especially in the vineyard, if it is not productive, it must go. And so we understand here that this landowner, his expectation that this fig tree produce is logical, it is reasonable, it is rational. And if it does not produce, it has to go. Here's another passage to consider when we look at Israel's connection to the fig tree and the vineyard. This is from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Now, thi now this is not the entire context. We're going to come to the whole thing in a little bit. But this is just a, a portion of this passage. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. This is Isaiah speaking of the Lord in his vineyard, and his vineyard is identified as Israel. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He put a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. And so here, all the way back in the days of Isaiah, we can see here the understanding that God has prepared Israel. He, like a landowner, took care of his vineyard. He cultivated the ground. He put them on a fertile hill. He removed the stones. He made sure everything was perfect. 
for these vines to grow and produce. And they represented the nation of Israel. You know, so, so how does this connect? How is Israel supposed to be this fruitful fig tree? Well, if you were in Sunday school with us this morning, uh, you would see the connection. As I was sitting there listening to Pastor Scott, I have to admit, I was taking his notes and I was making my notes because I thought this perfectly connects to Israel being prosperous. Psalm 87, as we studied this morning, was, it was titled Glorious Things to Come. And as the focus there was on Zion, we know Zion or Jerusalem, that is representative of Israel. And so we were going through some psalms talking about how God was planning on blessing Israel, blessing Jerusalem, blessing Zion. And we were focusing at at one section of how other nations were going to be there as if they were born in Zion, as if they were born in Jerusalem. The Philistines and the Babylonians and all these pagan nations you would think have nothing to do with Israel. A day is coming where it's, it's it's as if they are from Israel. Because of God's plan to bring the gospel to the nations, the inclusion of the Gentiles. We need to understand that God's plan in creating Israel has always been to glorify him and to bring a blessing to the nations. There was a time when Israel did not exist. God called Abram from his land and took him to a new land. And the promises he made to him, we call those the Abrahamic covenant or or the, the, the aspects of the Abrahamic covenant. You can read that, you know, read about that in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 21. You can see all the promises that God has made. One of them was that the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham and his people. So it's always been God's desire that Israel produces fruit, that they be a fruitful nation, a fruitful vineyard, a fruitful vine, a fruitful fig tree for his glory. And so when we look at Israel and we say, how does this parable connect to them? The answer is, is they were entrusted with the revelation of God. God sent his prophets. God sent his word. It was to be uh, taken in by Israel and, and lived out, applied. It was to be shared with the nations. And they failed to do that as a whole. Of course, there were faithful and there are faithful Jewish people today who embrace Christ as Messiah, who embrace the word of God. We would call them the remnant that God has preserved. But the nation in general, throughout history, has been a barren fig tree. They have not produced the fruit that God intended them to. So in this parable, Israel is the fig tree. The landowner is God himself, God the Father. And the vine keeper, the vineyard keeper, is Jesus Christ. We'll get to his role in just a little bit. But this is the the expectation or the desire to be fruitful. As the landowner wants his crops, his his plants and his trees to be fruitful, God wants his people to be fruitful. Well, look at the danger of being fruitless. And he said to the vineyard keeper, so here you have the landowner and then the one he's entrusted to keep his vineyard. Again, this is the father and the son, God the father and God the son. Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? So if we can imagine this this conversation taking place in the parable between the one who owns the land and the one that he's put in charge of his vineyard, he comes to him and says, look, three seasons, three years. There's absolutely nothing here that, that is profitable in this tree. Remove it. 
It's a large tree. It has big roots. It's taking up all kinds of space. Get rid of it. And the vineyard keeper should do exactly what the landowner desires and requires. And so again, this landowner is speaking of God the Father. This is kind of, if we can call this, this is between the father and his son, this is kind of the, the state of the nation address. You know, we have these addresses. We look at our country and whoever is in the White House at that time will come and give us the state of the nation. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not so good. Well, this state of the nation address about the people of Israel was not good at all. The father said, there's no fruit. They are barren. They've produced nothing to glorify me. They must be cut down. Now, that might seem cruel. That might sound unreasonable. But when we understand that God is the creator and we are his creation, that the reason why we exist is to bring glory to his name, Every person who violates God's law, every person who rebels against him, every person who is guilty of sin is fruitless, is a worthless tree that is taking up precious space, that is using up his, his resources as they have life on this planet. We don't deserve any extended grace period from our creator because we have been fruitless, spiritually fruitless, and he is right to judge. So when the landowner says, take it out, it's worthless. I've come back for three years. There's nothing on it. It's a logical decision. And, and any landowner who comes to the vineyard keeper would expect that this would be carried out. And in most situations, the vineyard keeper would say, you're right. Let's get rid of it. Just get rid of this worthless thing. I think it's safe to assume here, and as we're looking at three years, this is not three literal years. This is not to say that the people of Israel have been given three years, 36 months, and they haven't produced. You know, as you look at this, this is probably just telling us here, as you look at the, the, the natural cycle of a fig tree, uh, you know if you have uh, plants or trees that produce fruit or vegetables, uh, sometimes it takes a season or two or three before they really start to produce. And so some would say that this is actually uh, giving enough time for the tree to produce. It, it takes root. It grows to maturity. Maybe that first year, there's not so much. You don't expect much from it. The second year, but the third year, there should be a great crop. So a lot of people look at that, a lot of commentators, and say, this demonstrates to us that, that there is plenty of time for this to be a productive tree. That it's not literally three years, but from the time God made Israel a nation, that this just shows us there's plenty of time for them to be fruitful in the hundreds and hundreds of years that they've existed. Another thought is that, that in Jesus' earthly ministry, remember, he was down here on earth for about three, three and a half years. And so some commentators look at this and say, well, this is talking about the time that Christ entered his public ministry. And when he came and presented himself as the Messiah, for these years, the people have rejected him. They have not been listening. They have not repented of their sins. So this is talking about Christ's earthly ministry. I, I think there's some good points to both, but I can't be dogmatic with either one. But what I can tell you is this. Whatever three years represents, whether it's the time from Israel became a nation to this point when Christ told this parable, or it is representative of Christ's earthly ministry, the point is this. They've had plenty of time to be fruitful. 
and they have not. So let's not get so wrapped up in three years, but understand that at this point in time, they should be producing fruit, and they are not. It's a, it's a very simple message, and the meaning is very clear. An unproductive tree must be removed. You know, this was the same message. I'm not sure how that slide got there, but take a look one more time of, of what it should be, what a, a productive tree should look like. They were not that, and so what did John the Baptist say? Remember, Israel had the Old Testament prophets. John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. So they heard from John, they heard from Jesus himself that judgment was coming. John in his ministry here, Matthew chapter 3, verse 10, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so what John is saying here is this, is that, that total judgment is coming. You know, if, if you cut down a tree, but you leave the stump, that tree can regrow. If you've ever seen a stump in a forest, or maybe you've had one around your house, you know that there, could, there can be life that comes from that stump. Why? Because the roots are still in the ground. But when John says the axe is laid at the root of the trees, that means total judgment is coming. You damage the tree, you cut it down, but you leave the stump. There's still hope for that tree. But you take out the roots. That tree is dead. It will never come back to life. And so as John the Baptist was there in his ministry, he was calling people to repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and what? Thrown into the fire. It is consumed. They would take out these worthless trees, the literal physical trees, and throw them, burn them up, cast them out. But again, the greater spiritual meaning is here. That God's judgment is laid at the root. Every person that is unfruitful, every person that is not reconciled to him through Jesus Christ, through his Messiah, the axe is laid at the root of your tree. That means he is ready to cast you out into judgment, into the place of eternal fire where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is talking about being cast into hell. And the landowner says, cut out this worthless tree. Kent Hughes says this in his commentary, the, the wishes of the owner of the vineyard are perfectly reasonable. Three years earlier, he planted a fig tree on a sunny slope in the fertile ground of his vineyard. As expected, it rose above the garden with the whole sky to itself. Its large, dense leaves blocked out the sun from the grapes below and drew precious nourishment from the soil. This was expected and acceptable because of the fruit it promised. Excellent care was given to it by the caretaker. But after one, then two, then three years, there was no fruit. So the owner's common sense commanded, cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? The useless tree was taking up precious space and exhausting the soil. It must go. Again, if we go back to the Old Testament and think about these fruitful vines or the fruitful trees, it, it was an imagery, it was a symbol of prosperity and blessing and success. So if the land was fruitful or the people were fruitful, it meant that they were prospering, they were blessed because of God's work and of their obedience to him. But when you saw a tree that was withered or barren or fruitless, it was a sign of judgment. The same thing is true here. 
And, and so the message to Israel in this parable was judgment is coming. You've been fruitless. And the master wants to cut you down. The master wants to cut you out. It's quite possible that that it's not just Israel in general that that Christ has in mind, but perhaps he's thinking first and foremost of the false teachers. Matthew chapter seven, verses 15 and or through 20. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. You ever want to know whether a person is a genuine believer in Jesus Christ? Look at their lives. We understand that this, this does not mean that we, we live in perfection. No Christian can live a perfect life, not in this world. Because we still live in a world that is filled with sin and we still struggle with temptation and sin. And we fall often. But the desire to live holy lives is there. There should be a contrast between who you were before Christ and who you are in Christ. There should be fruit that is evident to everyone. And maybe you've heard that. Maybe somebody says, you know, I remember you in high school. I remember how you used to be. Why don't you do these things anymore? Remember when we went and did this? And you might be ashamed to remember that. Why? Because you've changed. Your mind has changed. Your desires have changed. Your actions have changed. That's all a product of the gospel, the transforming power of God's word. That your, your, your heart, your mind, your soul has been transformed. But for those who bear no fruit or who bear bad fruit, they are in danger of God's eternal wrath. It happened in Israel's day. It happens in our day. We have so many people who profess to be Christians. They profess to be disciples of Christ. And yet you look at their lives and there is absolutely no fruit whatsoever to be found. You know, we live in a, in a day and age. I don't even know if they still call it this, but they used to call it easy believism. Well, all you have to do is say, well, I believe in Jesus Christ. Well, great. The demons also believe and tremble. Well, well, I went down at the at the harvest crusade and I prayed a prayer. Well, great. Have you changed? I'm not saying that people can't be saved at the harvest crusade or that praying a prayer doesn't save you. I mean, we have to pray and ask God for that salvation. We have to go before him and confess our sin and ask for his mercy and, and, and to be humble before him. That's a prayer. So absolutely the prayer is important. But to simply point back to it and say, I, I repeated a prayer, therefore I'm saved, or I went down at this event, or I raised my hand in Sunday school, that doesn't mean anything. Let's see your fruit. If you are genuinely saved, you're going to bear fruit. Don't put all your hope, don't put all your assurance on repeating a prayer. Don't put all your hope and assurance simply on going forward at an event. Look at your life and say, have I committed to Jesus Christ? Do I not only call him Lord, but I live as if he is my Lord because he is. And my life has changed. Again, not perfection, but there's evidence of transformation. There are so many people today who are going to stand before Christ and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I pray a prayer? Didn't I go down before you at this event? And he'll say, I don't even know you. 
depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You know, the Jews would do that. Well, we're sons of Abraham. We're children of Israel. Well, great. God can call up sons of Abraham from these rocks. Don't think you're, you're saved spiritually just because of your connection to Israel. Don't think you're saved spiritually just because you've made a simple profession. The profession is necessary. If you confess with your mouth, and, you know, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is the expectation for profession of Christ. But a true profession, which demonstrates true salvation, is always going to bear true fruit. And that's the point here. Israel has not been bearing that fruit. And many today claim to be God's chosen people, but there's no evidence. No evidence of salvation at all. Now, before we move on, don't, don't get me wrong. Your works will never save you. You are not saved because you bear fruit. You bear fruit because you are saved. But the expectation is there, so you cannot ever have the mentality. Doesn't really matter how I live. It absolutely matters. Because if you are saved, you will live to glorify God. That will be your desire. That will be your daily struggle. That was Paul's desire in Romans 7. I know what I should be doing to glorify God, yet I'm still struggling in this fallen world. And I hate the struggle because I know what I should be doing. I think that's evidence of salvation. You find a person who's, who's okay with just sinning like the rest of the world, and no, I'm, I'm covered by grace. I think that's a Romans 6. You know, that, that you should not just continue to sin so that grace will increase. May that never be. That was Israel's mentality. They were these fig trees who had received everything from the landowner, and they bore nothing. And so they were warned by John. They were warned here by Jesus. The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. You don't bear good fruit, you're going to be cut down and cast into the pit of hell. Let's look at the second point, the, the deadline to become fruitful. He answered and said to him, let it alone, sir, for this year too until I dig around it and, and put fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Again, the landowner was perfectly reasonable. It was a logical conclusion, a logical you know, a, a request. Cut it down. It's wasted my time. It's wasted the resources. But here we see this very interesting act of intercession. You have the vineyard owner who comes on behalf of the tree. You know, there's an interesting parallel in a, an Aramaic rabbinic text, and it describes a landowner who had a, an unfruitful palm tree. And in this text, the palm tree is begging the landowner for more time to be fruitful. And the landowner refuses. The landowner says, you miserable tree. You did not bear your own fruit. How could you bear other fruit? And the request was not granted. But here in this parable, what we see on display is the intercession of Jesus Christ. The fact that he comes before the landowner, the son comes before the father and says, give them more time. He doesn't deny that they've been fruitless. He knows that. He can see it. He's been tending to them. He's been watering them. He's been nurturing them. 
he sees how fruitless they are. But rather than saying, yes, they deserve judgment, cast them out now, what does he say? Please, sir, give them more time. Just another season. Give them one more chance to bear fruit. We really see the beauty of Christ's intercession here on behalf of the tree. He says, let me dig around it. Let me dig around it. Let me loosen the soil. Let me get some more water in there. Let me get some nutrients, some fertilizer down in there. Let's give these roots everything they need to produce. Just give me one more season. Look at Job chapter 14. Last week we heard from Eliphaz as he was giving Job his two cents, trying to make sense of why Job was suffering. And he basically told Job, you know, in my experience, people who are innocent don't suffer. So you must have done something to deserve this suffering. Well, he was wrong. We know Job did nothing to deserve it. Ultimately, it was for the glory of God. Job remained righteous and faithful. Here in Job 14, we actually see some words of wisdom. This is Job as he's, he's contemplating the brevity of man's life and, and, and that death is coming and it's final. He says, man who was born of woman is, is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. You also open your eyes on him and bring him into judgment with yourself. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. And he limits, or in his limits, you have set so that he cannot pass. Turn your gaze from him that he may rest until he fulfills his day like a hired man. So he looks at, at man and says, well, we deserve judgment. Our days are numbered. We don't know how long we have. Our days are in your hands. But then he turns his attention to the tree. For there is hope for a tree. When it is cut down, that it will sprout again, and its shoots will not fail. Though its roots grow old in the ground, and its stump dies in the dry soil, at the scent of water, it will flourish and put forth sprigs like a plant. Job understood the natural world. He understood that if the tree still has its roots, that stump can produce. That old stump that looks dry and dead, that's in a parched land, if it receives water and the roots can take in that nourishment, guess what? It can come alive again. So when Jesus says, please, sir, let it alone for this season, for this year. Let me dig around it. Let me give it water. Let me give it fertilizer. Let me, let me nurture and care for it. Why? Because just like a tree whose stump is left and the roots are in the ground, there's hope for that tree. There's hope for Israel. Let me pour more of myself into them. Maybe they'll produce. I mean, this is really an amazing display of, of the wonderful attributes of God. You know, many people who, who look at God, they, they only think of God as this, this angry, you know, violent, vindictive God from the Old Testament. And they say, that's not my God. That's not how God really is. Well, we'll understand, God is angry with sin. God is vengeful. He is going to bring judgment upon sinners. 
But at the same time, God is merciful and patient and gracious. And you see all of these on display through the father, the landowner, and the son, the vineyard owner. You see everything there. The wonderful mercy of God on display as Christ is interceding for his people. Again, Kent Hughes says this in his commentary. This is astonishing mercy and grace. Astonishing because it means that the Lord of the universe who transcends, sustains, and maintains the vast cosmos gives us an extended period of grace during which he painstakingly does what he can to bring forth the fruit of repentance. Such mercy is awesome. I mean, who are we that God would be patient with us? Who are we that God would give us not a second or a third or a fourth, but who knows how many chances to get right with him? I mean, how many times has God brought someone into your life or you've read a passage, you've heard a message where he's telling you to wake up and get right? Over and over and over again, every day that you live, he demonstrates his mercy and grace. In a sense, we have that, that year, that grace period, where Jesus has said, sir, let them alone. Give them a little more time. Let me do a little more work. And maybe they'll produce. And so again, this, this wonderful display of the, the perfection of God's attributes, all of them, attributes that some people don't like and some people want to embrace. And we can look at this, at this and say there's no, no contradiction in God. God can be holy and just and angry with sin and loving and merciful and gracious at the same time because he is all those things in perfection. His anger and his vengeance, his justice is not like ours. Ours is flawed and plagued with sin. We think of vengeance and we think of someone who's vindictive, someone who's sinful, maybe a vigilante, someone who's taking the law into their own hands and breaking the law themselves. That is not God. When God administers his vengeance and his justice, it's because we deserve it. He is just in doing that. And he's gracious in giving us extra time. I had mentioned we're going to come back to Isaiah. This is the whole context of Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its walls and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. I will not be, it will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. He says, I came to my people looking for fruit, and I found nothing that demonstrated fruit. So I am going to remove my protection and my provision from them. 
And what happened to the nation of Israel? He provided everything they needed, and yet they provided or proved to be fruitless. He brought judgment upon them in, in the form of attacks and, and domination by other pagan nations, by the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. I mean, they went in and totally devastated the city of Jerusalem, enslaved the people, oppressed them. All of that was direct judgment by God because they were fruitless. In a few weeks, we're going to conclude Luke chapter 13. Let me just give you a little preview here. Jesus says, sir, can I have more time? Another year, another season. Let me, let me water and nurture them. And what do you think Jerusalem and Israel did? Nothing. No fruit. In fact, look at Luke 13, 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. God sent the prophets in the Old Testament. God sent John the Baptist in Christ as we read about that in the New Testament. He sent the apostles out. And what do they do? They rejected them. They rejected God's word and many of them they killed. They had every opportunity to bear fruit. And I'll tell you what, when we get to Luke 13, they're not bearing fruit. As we finish the earthly ministry of Christ, they're not bearing fruit. They call for his crucifixion. And almost every commentator will say the judgment that comes upon the nation of Israel is seen in 70 A.D. with the destruction of Jerusalem. That was direct judgment for rejecting the Messiah. God says, you worthless fig tree, no produce, cut you up and cast you out. But Jesus says, please, sir, just another season, just another grace period. Let's see if they'll come to their senses. They cannot say God didn't give them a chance. He gave them everything they needed, all the time they needed, and nothing you know, I mentioned that this parable has application for us today as well. You know, everybody here this morning, we need to understand the wages of sin is death. Without Jesus Christ, we are all fruitless fig trees. All deserve to be cut down and cast out. There is no doubt about that when you look at Scripture. We also understand, though, that God is merciful. He is gracious. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Right? That whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So when he should be pouring out his judgment and wrath upon us, what does he do? He sends the means of salvation. He sends his son to die on our behalf, to intercede for us, to say, please, sir, give them more time. I think we could safely say that, that our period of time where God is withholding his judgment is from the coming of Christ to the end times, when Christ comes back in that second coming and he takes his place on the throne. And there he judges everything that is not righteous, not holy. When he sits on that great white throne and casts everything and everyone who is not repentant into the lake of fire. So again, we see his, his divine mercy and his, his grace, the wonderful grace of God. Do you remember what we talked about last week? This judgment that's coming. Hebrews 9.27 
It's appointed for man to, to die once, and after this comes judgment. There, there is no doubt here that, that judgment is coming. God has been patient with us, and his son is, is interceding on our behalf. He, if, if, we, if we call upon him, we understand that we will be saved. We will be reconciled to him. And so that's what we need to understand, is that you, you don't know how long you have. I mean, if I were to ask you right now, how much longer do you have to live? What day will you die? You cannot answer those questions because you don't know, and neither do I. How long is it going to be before the axe cuts down the root of your tree? Safe to say, as, as long as you're here on earth, your roots are still planted. You might be a stump, but the roots are still alive. And if you receive the message of Christ, you accept that, that gospel truth, that he is the Savior, he's the intercessor, he's the one who died on your behalf, he's the one who lived in perfection, and he places that righteousness upon you when you come to him in faith and embrace that truth, that he's the Messiah, that you can do nothing to satisfy God, nothing through your own works. You, you can't trade anything with God. You can't barter with him. You can't buy your salvation. You cannot earn it. It has to come as the free gift of God. When you understand that and you ask the Lord to, to save you, you will be saved. And the roots will be watered and nourished and you will bear fruit. Now, because we don't know how much longer we have before judgment comes, let me share with you what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Listen, if you are not saved, if you are not right with God through Jesus Christ, you do not want to, to spend another day saying, well, I'll think about it. I'll consider it later. I'm not ready today. If you say I'm not ready for Christ today, what you're saying is I'm ready for judgment today. You may not say those words, but that's what your heart is saying. I'll take that risk. I'll take that gamble. I'll deal with it later. When I, when I have other things in my life that are, that are, that are dealt with, I've got, things to, I, I've got other things to think about right now. I need more time. Listen, God has given you time. He's given you ample time. How much more time do you have? I can't say. There's no guarantee that you have until 1 o'clock today. We just don't know. And this is Christ's point. All fruitless trees will be cut down and cast out. But the landowner has been gracious, and he's allowed the vineyard keeper to try to help that tree become fruitful one more time. And all those who bear fruit will demonstrate that they have been transformed and that they have been saved by God. Let me share one last thing, and this comes from Kent Hughes' commentary, and I'll close with this. That day is coming sooner than we think, and if we do not repent in this life, we will perish. Truly the wrath of God abides on the unbelieving, unrepentant heart. Repentance is nothing less than a radically changed life, a life that is intellectually and volitionally turned from sin. The fruits of such life are firsthand inward and then outward for all to see as beautiful works. Is your life changed and changing? Is there fruit? 
the mere fact that you are alive is due to the grace of God, especially if there's no fruit in your life. The message is this. Do not presume on the grace of God. He is looking for fruit. And if he does not find it, you will be cut down. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for this opportunity to spend some time in this passage. Father, I know that these past two messages maybe in the the eyes of many, seem very unloving and harsh. But the reality is no message could be more loving than the gospel message. That you have shown us through your word where we have fallen, where we have stumbled, where we have failed as your creation. You have explained to us through your word that, that condemnation comes for everyone who has sinned against you, everyone who's been fruitless. Father, but we also understand that you are merciful and gracious and loving and patient and that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to intercede for us. Father, I pray that that someone here this morning who does not have that salvation, but they want to be right with you, that they will just call out to you. They, They will confess their sin. They will confess their faith in Christ. They will confess their need to be reconciled to you and to be cleansed from their sins. And I pray that they will understand, Lord, that they truly believe that it's only through your Son that they can have that life, that there is no other name that can save them, no other work, no other person. Father, for those of us who are genuine believers, we have true faith in your Son, but maybe we have not been as fruitful as we should. We understand that, that our salvation is not in jeopardy, but we want to be, we be uh, good servants, We want to know that we are good stewards of what you've given to us, and so help us to be even more fruitful than we've ever been. Fruitful in our our daily sanctification, our desires, the, the reading of your word and prayer and evangelism, the proclamation of the gospel. Help us to be very, very fruitful people so that when you look down upon us, you are... Uh, glorified and you are, are, are pleased with how we live before you and that the rest of the world will see us and know us by our fruit. Father, thank you again for your mercy and your grace and your patience with us. And I pray, Lord, this morning that you have been glorified, we have been edified, and that this morning someone will be transformed by the saving power of the gospel of Christ. We thank and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.